0: Fear and doubt, Can you say a little in general, maybe, or... Fear and doubt. ...the relation between the two and how they condition each other? Mm-hmm. Well, well, doubt is a natural function of intellect, a capacity question, to look at a pipe which looks frozen in the corner of the kitchen, and then to solve problems through that question. So intellectually, doubt is a necessary... I guess someone who didn't have the capacity to doubt in question wouldn't be very good at any kind of analytical work. And then you could see a carpenter would have a certain grain of wood and a look at it in question. So that's the natural function of doubt that if we didn't have it, we'd be in trouble. Our intellects wouldn't really function. We wouldn't be not correctly. it. And fear's natural manifestation is... Biological. So you get to the edge of the cliff and you're really careful, or you don't get too close to the fire or climb up on it or something like that. Or I remember once I saw a rabid dog in India. I had this primal fear of it,
1: mm.
0: and everyone did. We were in a small marketplace, and I jumped up on the table, and everyone else did. Mm. It was like. This thing was crazy. Just crazy, crazy. So that's quite healthy. So there's a biological fear which is built into us. So I guess the question really is when does it become suffering? When does it harm us? When is it um, counterproductive? So it would be like the the reaction to doubt, say, of... One extreme of the reaction to doubt could be where I always need an answer. Okay, so you find this in, sometimes in the way monks will look at the Vinaya, where they'll, there'll be a gray area, and they won't be able to handle a gray area. They'll always need, what is it? Is it this or is it that? Is it left or is it right? And when they don't have that, they don't have the capacity to know doubt, and they get in a kind of a panic. That's an extreme. So, that kind of a person, I would think, would be like born again, born again into an idea. An idea that dispels all doubt. So, religions that offer that, don't think about anything else, this is the truth, are attractive to people who don't want to think, who just don't want to go there. So they have a, an answer which then covers everything, and if you've ever had to try to dialogue with a born-again, for surest, you'll notice that there's no dialogue. There's just a monologue coming from a certain text, and that could be in any... You know, it could be a, a, a materialist, it could be a Christian, it could be a Buddhist. This, this is the way, so there's no... There isn't a kind of inquiring going on, just, this is the answer, and there's no other answer. And that person will always be stuck in that viewpoint. And that would be ditupadana, attachment to views in various ways. And that would always prevent them from being free within the naturalness of doubt. You know, they'd always need an answer, so if there wasn't an answer, they would feel threatened and they need the answer. So they really hold on. So we call that ditupadana, one of the ways that attachment to views. And then maybe the other way of a person Not engaging a position around doubt, but actually always being caught up in doubt, dithering, Mm. Uh, being unsure. You give them an answer, they ask you four more questions. You give four more answers, get eight more questions, just constantly, yeah, but like a child. Who made the sky, mommy? All the skies, made by God or made by the elements or whatever. (laughs) And who made those elements? You know, they're just constant, constant, constant. And that person would never, that person would be so, so unable to see doubt as an object that they would be constantly in a mental agitation, trying to get an answer. But because of the nature of doubt, they oftentimes might not get an answer, or an answer they wouldn't believe. So both would be a kind of attachment to doubt. One would be through the indulgence in doubt, and the other would be through the position taking to alleviate the doubt, the, the discomfort of doubt. Fear, on the other hand, fear is... Uh, the, you know, if you take the range of fear, fear can be stimulated by doubt. What's going to happen with my pension plan and my stocks? If the stock market is tanking up, what's going to happen to me when I'm 64? Or whatever. And then that doubt, is valid because the, the market is shaky or, or whatever, or the bank goes bust or whatever. Now, let's say, let's say that the conditions are okay, but the doubt is still possible. That could take you to fear, right? And you can go just off into, yes, and you just take the worst, worst possibilities and go off into fear. And the person that was totally unattentive to the possibilities of the future could be very blasé and then regret it because they didn't have enough foresight, or didn't have enough caution. And in the range of the way we experience fear can be from a little bit of social anxiety to a panic attack, right? To just, uh, just a kind of... Like like if you meet someone who's at ill at ease, you feel ill at ease, that kind of social discomfort to like a full-on panic attack. So fear is fear's natural. If a bear comes, you feel adrenaline pumping through you like you've never felt nothing wrong with it so again it's the attachment to the fear and the, the challenge of being human as we were comparing ourselves to squirrels the other day is that we hold things in memory so as I was saying the squirrel I shoo him off my bird feeder jumps down just keeps feeding no problem I did actually <laughs> to confess uh, I have these bear bangers which are Spectacular! They sound like a a shotgun, and so I took, I took Venerable, I came out back. Hey, let's try one of these, and we just, just two boys having fun, and we popped them in the air, and then we called Chemical over, and he did one too, very spectacular, Um, great fun. The squirrel ran into the the forest and was back in an hour, (laughs) so the squirrel would know when it was probably dangerous but it it didn't seem to hold any resentment. There wasn't a heart meeting afterwards with the sangha about what I had just done. you know there was no memory, there was no gossip. there was no ganging up on me with his mates simple. <laughs> so we we are much more complex. So we have memory, and we have we have uh, psychological fear right we have we have fears which come to us from newspapers and, and demagogues who tell us the world's coming to an end, and, and then we have parental upbringing, and then we have this stuff that happened in primary school, and so there's a whole, there you are know, kind of layers of, of personality which get built up from dealing with these very human things. So, from the, an early age, we start to cope with fear and desire by, by creating strategies, so we talk in a certain way, we walk in a certain way, we dress in a certain way, and some of it is just our own aesthetic, some of it is the, what culture says is safe, or what culture says is outrageous, if, you're, you know, if you go the other way around. You know? And so you, get, you kind of build up this whole persona, and some of it is certainly colored by fear, and then, and then we start contemplating, and we see you know, fears coming up, which are actually not about this social situation, but they've been conditioned into our minds in ways because that's how we always survived in different social situations. And those are very hard to to unravel. Like a, a, a kind of primary fear of a strange animal you've never seen. Kind of, you can really see it. There's the object, there's a the stimulation, there's a the fear, there's your reaction. But there's more complicated fears and the personality built on top of it, so you get complexities like like you were talking about someone who has temper tantrums as an adult who developed them, who knows when, probably from fear and desire some some so it's still there. So our question is then, the attachment to fear, the attachment to doubt, and then vice versa, what's the skillful being with doubt, and what's the skillful being with fear, rather than Happiness means that you are—you never have any doubts or happiness means you never have any fear. You know, maybe that's possible to be totally fearless and never have fear, but if that were what you thought you had to do, then you'd be trying to get rid of the fear. But if you take more the idea of attachment, then, okay, there's fear here, you make it conscious, and then you start using formable truths to understand what attachment is. And attachment's always around craving. Uh-huh, right, so you start to like, or, or doubt too. So let's say the person who sees that they're very narrow-minded in their religious viewpoint, and they will, why am I so narrow-minded? And then we say, oh, that because they don't know how to handle doubt. Oh, and then they see doubt is with fear, in it. and then they say, oh, they don't, they don't want that unpleasant emotion, and they start to look at it and, around craving. And they begin to say, oh, fear arises, and there's a desire not to have the fear, and a desire not to have the doubt, but one starts to look at the desire itself. And then you start to unravel the causes for future fear, and the causes for future neurotic doubt. Because you see, the tan is a link, that's where you're going to break it. Let's say I'm very uh, attached to Vinaya And um, then there's a kind of gray area. And I, and, I, and I get kind of shaky. What should I do? What should I do? I don't know. It's not, a, you know, it's not that serious. And maybe I wait, rather than having the teacher tell me. Oh, I just wait and get a feeling for not knowing. Look at not knowing, and then I see, oh, the, the problem is not the not knowing, it's the craving to have an answer. I begin to see the attachment to craving, and I begin to have some space around the feeling of not knowing. Yeah? Because I oh it's okay I don't know I'll ask eventually I'll find out I'll look up the books but right now oh, this is what not knowing feels like and that is very unpleasant very uncomfortable but for most of us it's okay it's you know it's just not knowing but for some people not knowing is just not acceptable and they have to get an answer or something and that unraveling of our attachments through the four noble truths is a is a very um, arduous kind of constant. Attentiveness to our, our karma, our karma comes up in different ways. It, it's interesting in the in the language of Buddhism you hear, hear about Buddhism. There's very little about fear, and you, know, you don't you hear more to greed, hatred, and delusion. So you kind of put you put fear kind of in the delusion category usually or something. But like overt specifically, you know, the references are more to anger and loss and the busyness of mind, and so on. Whereas doubt is addressed more, and that's addressed through the, the five hindrances, and the third of the sanyojin, the, the fetters. So, in, in samadhi work, you can see that if you don't have the kind of firm determination just to stay with the way you like to meditate, the way you think is profitable, and that's vis-a-vis both the object and the, and, and the posture, many things. If you weren't firm in that, your mind would just kind of say, well, I've done ten minutes of metta uh, I think I'll just go do some yoga and then I'll do this and I'll do that, and, or maybe I should do this. And maybe, so there'll be a kind of restlessness in the mind. You won't really settle on it. So if you're doing some of the practice, you just have to you just do it. You just do it. This is, or, or like if I... anything like that, you just... I'm just gonna go for it and you understand how to use the questioning mind to see what the result is in your practice so then then you you know how to use doubt to see what's cause and effect but you don't get caught in the ego doubt should I do this am I getting anywhere that kind of dithering of the mind and then doubt for the in the Sanyojana, part of the three fetters there's Sakayaitita parmasa and and um, yeah. So doubt there is, it's more it's more like not having confidence that that which is the nature has the nature to arise as the nature to cease, all conditions, not not being con- confirmed or resolved in that, that all sankharas have the nature to arise as a nature to cease. And so the mind doesn't really know how to let go, you know, it keeps kind of getting in there and trying to do something, rather than saying, oh, this is a sankara it arises and ceases to pass away. So even the Sankara of doubt is a Sankara that arises and passes away, no problem. And so that's a deeper uh, understanding of doubt. So for the intellectual then, who has uh, like a great investment in thought and and fixed opinions, or strong opinions and and strong conclusions, they find that part of the Sankara very difficult because they always need a, a strong conclusion. And rather than Always having a, a strong conclusion in intellect, you begin to see well, intellect itself is a Nichidukanata, it's limited, it's, it, it can't really settle your mind because it's, it's an opinion which will eventually move on you. So you begin to see this, the desire for a conclusion, you see that as an object, the desire around not being sure, you, you see that as just something that arises and passes away. Whereas fear, because it's such a powerful emotion, and again, doubt can condition fear, but fear has so much energy, it's actually quite easy to observe. The fear is, for me, much easier to observe than insidious doubts, because it is a bodily formation that has tension, it has vibration, it's felt through various parts of the body, through like, especially the horror of the heart. So it's become. you become quite conversant with the nature of, kind of like snow, you say, oh, yeah, that's snow, it's not rain, you know, and you just kind of wait it out, you like it, you dislike it, whatever, you fear you don't like. Whereas well, doubt is much more insidious, it just kind of can just eat away self-doubt, especially if you think about that, oh, you know, I'm already not up to the mark, and I'm not getting anywhere, oh, I shouldn't have said this, I shouldn't, you know, that kind of very, very haunting it's kind of a haunting voice that just keeps preoccupying you. you don't even know it. Whereas fear has, has has you know it's got some some vibration in it. All the, all these things are in a spectrum. You know, so at some point you, know, you can you can see where, where of do doubt and fear meet. They're the same thing at some more subtle level of fear and more gross level of, of doubt. So it's not just one thing. It's a spectrum of intensity. But they're, they're human possibilities. And if they arise in our practice is to kind of really see, well, why is the suffering? Why is it a problem? Why is fear a problem? It's just fear. It's hard to say when I mean, you have it. You know, it's just fear. It's just fear, yeah. I mean, it's fear. So so you say, okay, why is it so problematic for me? You can't get behind it and say, what's and you go to the Second and Third Noble truths, the Tanha around it, this around it. And you study it. You know, if, if it's a part of one's uh, karma, one's character, strong fearfulness, then that's your, that's your curriculum, that's what you study, and just get to know it really, really well. Certainly among the monks, I can see some are, are just naturally more confident, some are more doubtful, some are more fearful, some are more equanimous. Interesting how, if you, you know, we read the biography of Ajahn Chah, how his fears are cultural, at least that was my take on it, about the ghosts. And maybe there were ghosts stomping around, and it certainly seemed that way. But certainly, his fear of ghosts is—I mean, I've never—I've never been there like that. But my fear of talks <laughs> There's like twenty ghosts out there. So the fear is the fear, right? The fear is the fear still. And culturally, it might be conditioned. It can be conditioned by a natural uh, environmental situation, like an animal or something like that. But Fear is fear, and, and whatever way it comes up, or doubt comes up, we need to understand its naturalness, where it's useful, where it's not useful, where the attachment is, where the letting go is. So we're not making a judgment about fear being right or wrong. Important um, human human condition. Like the squirrel, you know, how much doubt does it have? Any any thoughts around that? or?
2: Yeah, I think I was kind of wondering, like, where fear arises, why it arises? does it arise naturally, like you said, to be a tiger or something, or does it arise sort of less naturally, like through doubt
0: both huh? both? Both. Hmm. So why, you know, why is one person really they get up in the Dharma seat? I can think of one person, and they love it. They love being out there and you don't have to take the mic away from them. <laughs> and another monk gets up there and they're... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: you
0: know, why is that? And that's, that's karmic, cultural, where is it coming from? Quite often we don't know. We can guess sometimes, something in family life or whatever, and sometimes we don't know, it comes. So, the sources of it, sometimes it helps to, to accept it, uh, we accept, oh yeah, I, I got I was in a train crash uh, five years ago, and so you know, whenever I hear uh, I'm reading really the train tracks, I get really panicky, right? So you know, it helps you kind of accept it, but you still have to deal with it, right? And another kind of fear, well, why am I so afraid of this? You know, I don't know. But you still have to somehow come to accept it. So our, our reflection on acceptance, and this is my come up it's a way of not a fatalism, but of saying, "Okay, this is something I have to learn how to be at peace with." Because you know, if you're if you always are trying to figure out where it comes from, sometimes you can just get so caught up in the fear or whatever it is that you keep thinking about it, and you don't you don't see that the whole point of it is not figuring out where you're coming from. It's just the the, the abandonment of the attachment to kundas, whatever it is. So sometimes you can be so overoccupied with the sources of your suffering through self-analysis, that you're still in the sun you, know, still, you don't go to the silence of the mind. That's why body awareness with silence is very powerful. Body awareness with, with silent attention is not repressive, but it's not indulgent. It's dealing with the karma, but it's not perpetuating that karma. So it's like just, just like doing anapanasati I learning to be with the body with the silence of the, of attention helps you, if, if you get a panic attack or something like that. You've got some kind of
2: tool for you. Just to kind of touch, uh, touch on that same subject, would you... would you say that both fear and doubt typically always arise when you feel like a situation will threaten either your egoic sense of self or your physical sense of self?
0: Something just comes from memory. You've had that, haven't you? Where you wake up and you... Sh- or no, you wake up and you're just like sitting there and this rush of a memory comes up, I've had. Which is, I'm not threatened at all. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's just that there's been something in the... And there's something happens in the room and it triggers some memory pattern. So you could, because we don't, we don't really use that language of egoic sense of self or physical sense of self. We don't have that kind of language in Theravada Buddhism. We just have fear and and craving, right? So whatever the threat is, whether the threat comes from a person, I can't relate to that egoic sense of self. It's not a maybe because I just not use use that kind of language. So I, I suppose if I'm giving a, a Dhamma talk, and I feel anxious that that would be what you mean by egoic sense of self, and if I'm outside and there's a rabid dog coming at me, physical sense of self, yeah, yeah. So, okay, yeah. But there is, there is a whole in-between, a lot of stuff for me is memory. I noticed that when I gave talks, I've said this before, when I gave talks, I started to give talks, and i would be watching people, and I noticed that I want to impress all big men. Yeah, it's my dad. Mm. You know, little man. I didn't care about. <laughs> really, like it was something I could, you know, like little man's falling asleep. Oh, little man's falling asleep. Big man's falling asleep. Well, I, I want him to. I want him to like me. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I thought, yeah, it's probably just just trying to impress my dad or something. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> so, so you know, you get you get things like that, which you you can analyze or not analyze, but. But I find it much more helpful, like the third foundation of mindfulness. Well, this is a mood, and this mood is somehow, I'm suffering through it. What's the cause and what's the liberation from the fear? And that I find very direct, right? I find it very, very direct.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if I go into the woods and I, and I hear like a really smashing noise, it'll be easy to watch that. What I'll do, I don't know. You know whether I'll freeze or run or... <laughs> Uh, I don't know what I'll do. Like the layers of feeling threatened that we have, and then we have uh, you know, we're either maybe aggressive or submissive and all of that. That's that's quite tricky, isn't it? Into, you know, watching all of that. Is that? Yeah. And I, the third foundation of mindfulness is for me very important. that Knowing the mood of the mind. Yeah. It's just like it's, what is this? I, that's the kind of language I'll use. What is it? In My mind is, come, make yourself. No, become conscious, rather than me pinning a label on it. Mm-hmm. That I find very helpful. This, and this is how you use doubt, I think. Doubt as a kind of awakening. Okay, what, what's the problem? Mm-hmm. And then you let it go. You let, you let the doubt go, and you really just let whatever is there become conscious. So maybe I'm... You know, like maybe I'm talking with someone and and I'm just feeling and I just think inwardly say, so What is it? What's going on? And then feel it, be with it, be one with it. And that's the, that's what we call for me Dhamma Vijaya, the um, investigation of Dhamma, which is a skillful use of Dhamma, Rather than the you know, the thinking part which goes, Why did I, why not I just the real raw nature of the mood. And I, I find if you if you get to those, then you understand that mood in all contexts. You know, a, a hundred different contexts, but it's the same type of mood: aggressive mood, or submissive mood, or whatever it might be. I have one mood that is kind of this kind of perverse, wanting to make, wanting to just throw something into the <laughs> into the mix. <laughs> One author calls it the imp of the perverse. This kind of little being that wants to. It's not a good one. It gets me in trouble. (laughs) It seems like this will be fun if I do this. There I am again. (laughs) It's hard to explain. It's mischievous. Mischievous, that's the word. Yeah, Yeah, mischievous, that's the word. Yeah, that's the word.
2: You just mentioned you can know moods in like hundreds
0: of different situations. So, so do you know them primarily in terms of their physical form? And also as a mood. You know, the mood of happy is different than the mood of depression, right? And, well, you know, we were talking about that earlier. And it's not just in the body, it's it's in the mind somehow. Mm -hmm. We can't really locate it in the mind because the mind has no location, but we know it's a color. So it's more than just the body. You just, you just know, yeah, I'm really uninterested right now, or, or whatever. Um, but you develop a real sensitivity to the yeah. specific sensations that you can say, oh, yes, okay, no. Yeah, I've tried that a lot, yeah, to, to get the two, the, the kaya and the jitta, to see that they're one operating system. But, you know, like a subtle mood, if I'm, if I'm not aware of the body, I still know it as a mood, right? still but but I find that is a really such a lovely way to process these these things through the body and you, you do get you get like this bodily intelligence don't you you get this kind of incredible sensitivity to the arising of tension and, and especially like with people it's so helpful you you're starting to talk with some oh, 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 there it goes and you stay with that rather than with the Acting out and it's very very helpful.
2: And you wear you wear it out, right? And this morning was reading. I don't remember exactly how it went, but there was something about when the mind is fully awakened that the kilesas are still present, but that they don't affect the awakened mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you be able to expand on that? If, if I'm okay, so if, if a kilesa is,
0: uh, let's name one, egoic judgment of someone, you know, you're too slow, but not so strong, maybe. If there's the awakened mind, then that that arising is known to you, probably because you're just familiar with your own personality, but that, as it comes into consciousness, it's known as asankara. And the choice to act or not act, and it comes from wisdom and compassion. And the wisdom knows well this. This is simply a habitual way of interpreting life, a habitual perception, and it's unreliable. And the mind doesn't need to go through a long analysis; it just knows right away. And because it's not, it's allowed to fully manifest without resistance. It can go through very quickly and go in the mind sort of silent very quiet. You know, we have the word uh, kilesa, we also have the word anusaya, latent tendency, and that's the kind of the weight or momentum of kilesas that can get triggered due to past kama, whatever sort. So the weight of the kilesa very much depends on how able you are to be aware of it, And then the weight of your sati-sapanjanya determines how well you can handle it, right? So so you have the the kind of karma momentum of stuff being triggered, and then the the momentum of all that wholesome, of the parami, engaging that. And uh, as you practice, you find that the parami just naturally become a stronger and stronger presence in the way life is interpreted. And then the, the karmic tendencies are more known through the parami rather than through self, through ego, through all that. So, um, I moderate our committee meetings, right? If someone is saying something and I want to jump in, say, I'd never jump in, of course. <coughs> and, you know, I want, to, I want to get my opinion, then I, you know, then I know, okay, this is practice. I can develop the, the paramia patience to say my thing whenever, and then if someone else jumps in, which happens, and, and it's my my job to moderate the committee meeting, then I can I can practice tolerance, but I can also practice firmness, so the committee be- meeting becomes a way of both knowing my habitual tendencies, which are unskillful, and the developing parami in that very. Simple social environment, not threatening, but actually still, you know, press a few buttons sometimes. Huh? So it becomes really quite a, a nice little exercise in, in developing parami. And that model in Theravada where you, you're cultivating the parami as a, as a method, it's always the method is always awake in mind in the present moment. So you can see how sila, dana, kantibarami, aditana metta, uh, upekha, um, uh, panya, all those things, they're always about the present moment. Right? They're always about that. It's not like you're developing barmi, so you have an, another experience next time. It's this experience becomes more and more imbued with that, and less and less imbued with suffering. And the karmic tendencies, they're imbued with suffering. Quite often, aren't they? You know, my strong sense of alienation, separation, and self, and greed, hatred, and delusion manifest. And then, then the, the very much the way of practice of the forced tradition is to use this stuff to develop parami. And if you can get your attitude towards that, rather than, I've got a problem, it's called, you know, which is a more like a, a Western psychological way maybe of analyzing this, I've got a problem, rather than, no, these are sankharas, this is a chance to develop parami. And, and then you introduce language like patience or it all belongs. Compassion, it way of compassion to balance. Then you have a whole different language of working with your karma. Whereas if the only language you have in working with your karma is always just like self-analysis, it's endless. It can seem really, really, really dispiriting. But you bring up the language of parami and say, okay, it's, yeah, it's really difficult, but I just see okay, I just have to be patient with this. And that already, you know, already
2: that's a, a lovely, a lovely attitude. Yeah, I guess for for any given situation that arises, you can then you can then reflect on, okay, what parami can I yeah develop in this situation?
0: Yeah, yeah, then? yeah. And then you've already got distance. You're already reflective. It's not a, an ego problem. So that's a really uh, lovely way to think about it. And it, and the parami will just help you be present to the way things are. Like a patience. Like so much of Lompa teaching was just telling us, you know, you just, just got to develop endurance and patience because you just don't have the parami. You know, that talk we read one day we said, yeah, you're going to sit all night like the Buddha and not move and get enlightened. Yeah, yeah sure, you don't have the parami for it. <laughs> He's going to wreck your knees. <laughs> and, and true, you know, we, all of us. We, in Thailand, we all read that and we're all just furious for trying to get enlightened one the first night. You know, <laughs> wait a minute? <laughs> so it was, it was quite a kind of. There was an interesting emphasis on, like, you know, do the work, but be patient. So it, was, it wasn't all just kind of striving, it was, in it was this sense of, well, you got karma, you gotta be patient, develop the bar Yeah, so that's sort of more hopeful.
2: I question. Uh, I'm just curious what you can say about proper etiquette uh, in situations like the one I shared uh, with you about the visitor. Oh, a visitor, yeah. yeah. Well,
0: I must admit... When you said that to me, I thought, oh gosh, someone's just gonna leave their troubled son with me. And people have done that. And I've been naive enough to think I can help. And it just burns up the monastery. Because we're not we're not therapists. And we're also not a a drop in center for troubled people. It just it burns everyone out. And I remember once I way back in Chithurst, I allowed a, a woman to stay who was very troubled. And, oh, yeah, you can stay, but... You know, ten minutes after I said, I realized, yeah, but the nuns are going to take care of her. I don't have to. And I, uh, I think I backed it off for anything, but I realized, no, 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 my responsibility first is this community. I have to make sure that we have an environment that is composed and good for practice, as opposed to thinking we are a hospital, like I was saying uh, to someone I was saying, and it's not, you know, we do graduate work, we don't do hospice well, hospital work, right? And it would it would seem compassionate that if anyone came along, we'd take care of them. Well, we do to a certain extent. But like, so what we always encourage is someone to come at the mealtime, because that's when, the, you know, the senior monk is available. And then uh, the senior monk can assess, okay, okay what is appropriate here? And uh, if someone has psychosis is something just no way just just like no way because we just don't have the the skill or the um the situation where we can do that well and I've seen and all, all monasteries are people who who have psychotic breakdowns and we do our best with it but I've seen how exhausted the monastery gets because because you know everyone is trying to help this person and I have seen where where like early years are very very un Educated about that kind of thing and the monks who were the best who were the ones who were nurses in, in psychiatric hospitals they were the ones that really understood boundaries and and medication and things like that and I have had people who in the beginning said well oh, that person just sat for three hours wow that's impressive but they're just going more and more hallucinating hallucinating mm-hmm. and telling then later telling me they're, they're Kuan Yin or whoever, and so, so someone who has deep psychological problems, sometimes meditation is the last thing you want, and then you contact them, many, many things, and in the winter retreat especially, you don't want anyone to have to take care of someone, because someone new comes in, someone's going to have to hold their hand, you say, yeah, yeah you can come, someone's going to have to be there with them all the time. So we always just assess the kind of maturity of the person, and can they be self-sufficient? If it can't be self-sufficient and just get on with the practice, this won't work for you. You guess you get lonely and, and and whatever. So winter retreat, definitely not. And then j- just that idea of like bringing someone and just ordaining them to sort their problems out. It's a it's kind of a maybe it is an Asian idea. But If there was someone who was troubled and in the village that the monk would know, then that would be different, but kind of coming from the cold, that wouldn't work. So I think what you said was good, to to, to come if they want to come at lunchtime and talk to the senior monk. So there is a sense, okay, we're not, we're not turfing you out. Mm. And I think the good reflection is that if you happen to be the person where a guest comes, your job is to protect the monastery and everyone in the monastery Rather than to take care of them, and ha- that has to be the priority. And then you see, okay, do we have the resources to to help take care of this person?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So then, if the person is quite reflective, and they're you know whatever whatever problems they're in, they say, yeah, yeah, they got they reflect, they can be alone, okay, yeah, come as a guest in April, that kind of thing. Come, and you know how we do. We say, come for three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just check it out. So because we have so much experience of people being not able to, to live this life, huh? yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a quite an important one, actually, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I can see, you know, whatever the, the mom is hoping, but if the son doesn't want to be here and the mom brings him, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh gosh. <laughs> Sometimes the moms do that with kids. Can you, take, can you take my son, you know, like an eight-year-old for the summer break? <laughs> <laughs> we're going on a two-week petition <laughs> now in, in, in Burma or Thailand they have monasteries where kids will ordain as novices but it's all set up for them as a school there's monks who trained in that and they'll be there for a month and everyone's doing it so it's a peer thing but like the novices at Wapapong that come usually they're like 14 years old or more and usually they want to come you know, they just have that. They've seen monks around the village, they have karma towards it, like a Chah, that kind of thing. I think you have to think, okay, if this person comes, and I'm taking responsibility for them coming in, I'm going to say, okay, I can be with this person 24-7. That's, again, a good personal reflection, you know, and, and I'm willing to do that. But the best is always to ask the senior monk. Definitely, because we, you know, we've got the experience. Yeah, compassion and wisdom. Yeah, I think when we started our monasteries, we just thought, well, oh, everyone can meditate, you know, be mindful. And, but we, we found that it's not, not always the case. <clears throat> Especially like with ordaining, we found, oh, I just put him in a robe, you'll sort it out. And, <laughs> and you know, not, not necessarily true. So some people, therapy is much better, or medication, and then, and then when there's a, like a balance, then the monastery is Works, you know, works for that. Yeah, yeah, that last question, you realize that what you're looking at is someone who can reflect. That's what you're always looking at a person who's going to do well at the monastery, who has. Like, I, even I've seen Buddhists come here and they, they just believe in Buddhism and they don't reflect. And you, you know, you, you see, this isn't going to work for you. Because they they're always asking like positional questions. Always trying to get the right position on rebirth, or the right position on dependent origination—is it three lives or is it one life? Or the right position on this and you know—and and always you give them an answer and they come back with another question. But it's always just—it's not reflective. as you get another person who has no experience of Buddhism, right? And you just ask them, you know, so. Oh, how are you feeling here? So I feel really anxious, is Yeah, and, and how does that feel in your body? Oh, yeah, really tight, and, and they're away. Because they're reflective, they can watch, they can... Observe. So that's really what... I think, Buddhist practice, where it works, that's where it really works.
1: I have a burning question. It's not related to most of what we've been talking about today. I'm very curious about um, eating meat.
0: Uh-huh. How I'm does it work good. here?
1: Yeah, and, and the reason that I ask is because I, I think when I was here, um, when I was staying here back in, I don't know what it was, November, um, I had asked Venerable Sileko about that when I first arrived, and he was talking about the, um, I guess, the kama for someone to actually kill the meat. And so if the meat is not, if the animal is not killed for the purpose of, us eating it, then it's not the same. And I guess I'm very confused about that because in the way I look at it is that so so I we we Sebastian and I we raised rabbits for meat. Right. And we we do kill them ourselves and we do that we, we choose to do that because we find that it's a much more responsible and compassionate way to have meat as opposed to buying Meat from the grocery store. So we actually trust that this animal has had a good life. It's been loved. We've respected it till the end. Basically, we gave it blessings. And so, even though the meat that we have at our table was meat that we it was from an animal whose life we took intentionally, from my perspective, there's actually less kama in that than going to the grocery store and buying meat from an animal that. Had suffered where people weren't getting good wages, where it's polluting. where right. So I'm, I'm confused. Like
0: an Auschwitz chicken farm.
1: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, if you if you look at
0: kama in terms of some larger result, or you could look at like some kind of future result of my kama, or you could look at kama as Action and a result from intention immediately. Mm-hmm. So when you when you care for your rabbits and and you feed them and you love them, that's that's comma mm-hmm. of a loving kind. Mm-hmm. When you slit their throats, mm-hmm. that's comma of a killing kind. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's the way you can look at comma. It's a very immediate thing. Mm-hmm what the result of that is in the future, I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The texts say, be careful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have to warn you, as an orthodox monk, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know, but the texts say, you're, you're in dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. But that's the difficult teaching around kamma. Mm-hmm. The, the, what is the larger result of the actions I have now? The immediate psychological result, I think we can see. I can see that when I, there's a whole different feeling when I care for the rabbit or when I kill the rabbit. I mean, there's, there's got to be just a completely different feeling in, in, in your mind and how it affects you. What is the ongoing, con- is there a consequence in your body of, of, there is a consequence of compassion, right? You can feel your body likes that. Is there a consequence of killing in your body? Must be. Right uh, in some way, and, and what's the consequence later on i don 't know i don 't know so that's that's the area of of belief
2: mm-hmm.
0: that we have, mm-hmm. and so we, we say the text and we say the text say wrong livelihood is the, is the killing of animals, mm-hmm. and wrong livelihood is gun running, and wrong livelihood is is, is dealing drugs, and wrong livelihood is, is uh, usury and, and, and things like that, and and then the five precepts of um, not killing, and not stealing, and so on. The first teaching the Buddha lays out is generosity,
1: mm-hmm.
0: in, in what we call the graduated teaching. That's his first hit, be generous. The second hit is be moral, and he lays out the five precepts. Mm-hmm. So that is the kind of protection we have, modern thoughts about animal husbandry, and animal welfare, and so on, are much more mega, I suppose, right? Kind of including... So, there's a kind of compassionate basis in in what you're doing, Mm -hmm. right? But in terms of when a person goes to the market and buys a pork chop, right? In terms of what their mind's doing, they're just following greed. So, if they gave up the pork chop, they'd be following renunciation and maybe compassion. They say, I really don't like the pork industry. I don't like that, so I'll give up pork or meat or whatever. For this. you know, So you'd be, on an immediate level, be developing compassion. What it is in the long term of a whole culture buying meat, I don't know. I don't really know. So the only thing I know is, first of all, what my mind is doing, plus what the Buddha is recommending. So your way of looking at it is, is a kind of beautiful way to look at it, but it... The, the, the conflict is the killing part, mm-hmm. right? And the conflict is the killing part, and that you have to resolve. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, the monks aren't like priests. You know, we absolve you from your sins kind of thing, because you, you took good care of the rabbit for 12 years or whatever. How long does the rabbit last? I don't know. We've only started a few
1: years ago. It hasn't been 12 years yet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll
0: tell you in a few years. See, we, we can't absolve anyone of the comma. And we don't know what the come is, mm. right? So the only way I can say is I know that there's a huge difference from me feeding the squirrel throwing a rock at it, <laughs> or something like that. So you know, in the end, like as a Buddhist monk, I'd say be careful. Yeah. You know, be careful with that, right? Yeah. Now if you get someone like what is it, Peter Zinger, the 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 moral philosopher from Australia, is he? Mm-hmm. He's very strong in vegetarianism, very, very, very strong. And he, t- he takes that argument, you know, you're just, you're just promoting the torture of animals if you're, if you're buying meat in a store. Whereas Theravad monk is saying, like me, saying, well, when you, when you buy the pork chop, what you're doing is you're following greed. That's what the mind's doing. It doesn't, the teaching doesn't take it to a sort of larger level like that. That's a, that's a kind of modern thing, I suppose, that we have a sense of that and it's good because it is compassionate you know it's like really concerned for so it's a mixture it's a mixture where where the killing of the animal comes in that mixture I don't know where the power of that Right. one of the monks uh, I say like like a Thai how a Thai monk thinks they take it tit for tat direct correlation so uh, one of the monks is getting headaches he says yeah I used to I used to beat fish up all the time as a kid whack him over the head now, as a Western, my mind doesn't make that quick correlation, mm-hmm. well, and I never I never beat Fisher with a either.
2: <laughs>
0: but uh, he makes it right away. A Western is so young, well, yeah, well, maybe you just got, you know, um, a bug or something like that, but his, so his cultural conditioning is always, you know, they're like like a, a someone born in a, in a Buddhist culture, they're always picking it up that way, that... This physical ailment I have was because some physical thing I did very much tit-for-tat. Right? Uh, I can't prove it, and I'm not that conditioned towards it. So if I get, if I get the flu, I don't think, you know, what did I, you know, what did I do? I just think I'll get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But then also in the text, they say not everything is conditioned by intention. And so not all sickness is conditioned by intention. So, so you don't know. What's actually quite good is when you have a conflict in your social philosophy and a social philosophy of a teaching you, you, know, you respect, you say, oh, okay, here's a conflict in my basic worldview. And that's good to question. And Rather than think you should be one way or the other, you, you, you're kind of really getting to the, to the fundamentals of your worldview. And then you have this other worldview challenging that. Just, so what do I believe in, mm-hmm. and why do I believe in? And how much of it is like my culture saying, this is, this is what's appropriate, and, uh, and so on. So that's a very, that's a very skillful kind of questioning, that kind of soul-searching.
1: I'm still a little bit confused in the sense that, so if we say that someone who raises animals and kills animals for a living is a wrong livelihood, yeah. and that it's greed to go out and buy a pork chop, So how is it appropriate for us as a Sangha to actually eat meat? Because we're actually getting that, and it's almost like, well let me pass the buck, so... Yeah, that's the the feeling of it. the other person does the killing, it's okay for me to eat it. Yeah,
0: that's (laughs) the problem. So what happened, the way it arose, was that the monks would go on round, and the lay people would offer them whatever food was available. So the monks weren't allowed to say, give me this or give me that. And there was an attempt at a schism by a monk called Devadatta, who was the Buddha's cousin, and was a very powerful monk in his own right. And he probably had some ego delusions, and he wanted to head up the Sangha. So he figured out a strategy that lay people will... Will respect asceticism more. Lay people always respect, like if a monk is fasting. Say, "Oh, Bante, you're wonderful!" Right? <laughs> There's always be you know anyone who's more ascetic always kind of. Ooh. And and so David Atta thought, okay, I'll set up a more ascetic set of principles. So he makes a demand to the Buddha, saying, "We can't eat meat. We can't live in kutis. We can't accept food from." Uh, householder, uh, like in uh, have a don at a home or something like that, he sets up these some of the principles, and the Buddha disallows. He says, "No, monks, I allow you to eat meat if you have not seen, heard, or suspect that it was killed for you. If you have not seen, heard, or suspect that it was killed just for you. In other words, that the lay person hasn't killed the rabbit just for them. The lay person eats rabbit." and shares it with the monk right so that was the principle and that was the boundary then around the eating of meat in Theravada. now when when buddhism went to china there was a i maybe in taoism there was already a a kind of a, a tendency towards vegetarianism and then so the the mahayana sangha is vegetarian so then you you have this this sort of allowance that if the meat is not killed just for me and I don't suspect that, then I allow lay people to offer it. And then it's up to the lay people. So it is, you know, it's not it's not super clean. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 messy. So so I know I tried, I tried in one monastery that, that I tried to make it a rule to be vegetarian. And and I found that like there is one cultural group, two cultural groups that they eat meat they bring the meat in the other cultural groups mostly Westerners then accuse them of bringing meat you can't bring that in here you know you can't you can't offer that to the monks and it's pretty ugly mm. really really ugly and I realized I can't do that I can't really do that uh, in this case having said that some monks will be very adamant about the vegetarians and they'll go through that until the whole culture learns and that would be a, a valid way to do it too and I've never I've never done that because of the Finger pointing and and, you know the kind of arguments around that. So food's a touchy thing with people. So it's it's messy. It it is messy, and uh, it's you know I don't I don't think it's hypocritical. It's kind of historical.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. It's historical. So so with the monks as individuals, they can choose not to take meat. They can do that. Or like, uh, like some monks who are abbots will just be adamant about it. I just don't eat meat. And then the whole culture knows uh, he, he doesn't eat meat, and more and more vegetarian food is offered. In, at Watnanachat, if I have it correct, I think that's the way it worked. Uh, when we started the forest monastery outside in Watnanachat, which is the International Monastery near Ajahn Chahs, uh, that was in 1975, we knew that the, 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 like there's a local supporting village called Bung and they're the main support village. And there people would come and, and cook food for us, as well as we would go alms round in that village. And then other people would come from farther afield. We realized that uh, I wasn't involved in this. I was a junior monk, but I think I have it right, that there was a, there was a sense that these people would be killing chickens for us. Because mm-hmm. that's what they did. So we said, you cannot, offer, you cannot offer meat to the monastery, because there was a sense that they would be killing for us. And I think cooks were brought in to teach them vegetarian cooking. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how to use uh, pulses and lentils and things like that, because that wasn't very much in the call. So they were taught vegetarian cooking. Uh, and I heard that they didn't. They, they gave it to the monks, but they still... <laughs> Used to like the chickens or whatever uh, and in northeast Thailand where we were uh, it was a very poor poor culture so anything that moved they ate so I once got a thousand egg omelette ants eggs you know and I get this and I was I was really craving protein and, and I, I you know I was having egg dreams <laughs> really I was really craving and, and I get this I say, oh that looks like an omelette I was on Pindapod in a little plastic bag and I oh, there's all these ants in the omelet. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's ant larva.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you know what it tasted like? Egg. <laughs> so so you get, you know, cultures around food. It's, it's strong, strong strong. Anyway, so so then we forbade the local village to offer meat. But if someone came from Bangkok, went to the market and bought something, we accepted anything. You know, so we're trying to use that rule, yeah. and all. But also, the the whole the whole thing that we we are almost mendicants, and we cannot ask for specific types of food. So it's it's messy. It's not it's not so super clean. Um, really, is there an element in there of <coughs> accepting people's dana, so say not alienating people, yes. and not accepting? Them? Yes, yes, very much, very. Yeah, yeah, that's very important. Yeah, because you know, if someone comes and they bring food, and say, "I can't have your food." Yeah. What's wrong with me? So, and it's especially like someone who's new to the monastery so, so it's very, yeah, it's the way we, it works better if you're on alms round like in alms round people put food in your bowl you, you know, you accept it all and then maybe you, you don't eat it all or something. we cannot eat raw meat we cannot eat wild animals like if, if a lay person would be endangered so there's certain eat meats we cannot eat by a very complex set of rules, so raw meat because it would get you sick, wild meat because it's just they they said it would be dangerous to be hunting that. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: something something like that. Mm-hmm. Not not that I ever caught bear or anything like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it wasn't wild meat. It was like dangerous animals or something. But like the Thais will eat raw fish and have a kind of. Very dangerous kind of raw fish that smells like hell we can't have that I once got on alms round the same place that gave me the thousand egg omelette some kind of raw pig with was very dangerous tichinosis is it what's it, it called when you get from raw pork mm-hmm. and so didn't eat that so it's uh, it's historical it's it's a different culture way of thinking of things and but I mean that way of thinking about the cruelty there is very beautiful. It's a very, very beautiful way of be thinking. Right? But in terms of karma, yeah. you know, the, the killing is still killing. There's something about the mind now is is, is taking a life. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't get away from that. Mm-hmm. And the effect of that psychologically maybe you can, you can see, but karmically, as we say, largely I don't know. I don't know how that works.
1: So then, along those lines, as a layperson, if I'm going to the grocery store and I have a choice yeah. and I want to prepare Donna some dish for the monastery, would it be more skillful to choose not to bring meat?
0: Yes, yes, because then you're doing both. You know, you're you're honoring your sense of of the wrongness of our mass extinction of animals <laughs> or mass, and and you're honoring that. And, and you're figuring out what a balanced diet is. And so, and, you, know, so you have the compassion there, uh, and and you have economic power, so you make some little dent in that, I suppose. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, that would be... But I can't, I don't want to say to you, you, you can only bring this, 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 and that. Mm-hmm. Although if someone's sick, I'll say, well, you know, if you can get some... Like if a monk is sick, then we'll say to, to like the, the stewards, can you make... Um, Non, what is it? Uh, non-gelatinous, what's this called? Gluten. Gluten. Gluten-free. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, non-gelatinous.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a kind of new thing for me, a lot of these diet things. Because I guess because I've had a healthy body, and in Thailand, there was just like. It wasn't an option B. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a it's a it's a controversial one.
2: Yeah.
0: Certainly the Mahayana will say, Well, why can't you? Why can't you do that? In in uh in what? At Chithurst monastery, when the Lao people brought food, the Lao people eat a lot of meat. And we had a cat called Doris. <laughs> and when the cat when the Lao people came to offer Dana, it was Doris days. <coughs> Because a lot of the meat would end up in Doris's dish. We call them Doris days. And then there was a sign on Doris's dish one day if you want to kill Doris, keep feeding her. Oh. <laughs> and yet the Lao people would come, and this was, a, this was the best food they could offer, and that's what they knew, and that's what they cooked. Among kin. Um, choose to be vegetarian. So sometimes a monk will take and just just not eat it. Just so the light person feels that we're taking it for a bit. It's it's kind of complicated
2: sometimes. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I just remember one of the suttas uh, I think it was a sutta or it might have been one of the poems in the cherry guitar or something Uh where um, I don't know if this is what it might have been another monk that was on alms around there's a line about a leper offering food. His finger drops <laughs> his finger off. Finger
0: <laughs> drops off in the bowl. <laughs> it's uncooked meat, you can't have it. <laughs> 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 no, it, was it was I mean, Oh, is it? Is, it? Yeah. Is, it, is it?
2: He talks about how he had no aversion, no one was eating
0: it. Yeah, because sometimes you go to alms in, in Thailand and there's like a little three-year-old putting rice in your bowl and they wonder where his head's been. <laughs> You just take it and hope for the best. But you know, like, look at look at your philosophy around that, and then be challenged by these ideas, and then talk it over. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Well, it's time to wash the dishes, or okay.
2: sa de sa and moda.